Cracks and Pomo will be releasing a zine featuring a variety of writers, some of whom have been featured on this podcast. To order a copy or to make a contribution to our funds, please DM at Cracks and Pomo. So we're back at Cracks in Postmodernity with Jacob Bauer, who's a lecturer of philosophy at the University of Dayton. And he also runs the Philosopher Games social media accounts, which is where I found you. So Jacob, first off, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like teaching philosophy, why it's worth learning philosophy in school. So if you can just give people some background in terms of First, why did you study, decide to study philosophy? What attracted you to it and all that? Yeah, so actually I started out as an engineering major of all things. And I, I think I was drawn into philosophy first through theology, uh, through the writings of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I enjoyed his, uh, well, Chronicles of Narnia, but then started reading his uh, more theological and philosophical works and really intrigued me. So I decided to take some philosophy courses at my college and fell in love. And uh, my original plan was to double major in, in engineering and philosophy. And I slowly started taking more philosophy courses and less engineering classes. And uh, well, many years later, here we are. Did you find any overlap between engineering and philosophy? Like, is there a relationship between the two for you? So for me, the, the relationship especially so in the area that I, I particularly study now in ethics, I think there is a, a strong relationship. Engineers generally want to well, use technology to change the world in some way, and usually for, hopefully, <laughs> for the better. Uh, and there's also an aspect of you know using critical thinking, trying to think outside the box to solve design problems uh, is an aspect that there's, you know, there's a correlation with philosophy as well. Yeah, I, I didn't realize this when I was younger, but in retrospect, I can see how like studying geometry for me, like the um, having to make those proofs, I saw myself using the same kind of logic when studying philosophy. And I, I don't know, like I never would have thought that when I was younger, that math and philosophy, I mean, Plato would have, could have told us that, but right, right. Um, yeah, but you see, yeah, you can see those overlaps with like the STEM kind of fields, but so it's it's interesting though that Lewis was your way in because I remember I I went to a school where they required us to do two semesters of philosophy and two of theology. And the first philosophy class, it was this like 85-year-old woman who had been there for 40 years. And I had no idea what she was talking about. You know, like we were reading Aristotle, we were reading, you know, um Kierkegaard. I couldn't understand any of it because I had I had no exposure in high school. And yet I could tell, even though I don't get what she's saying, there's something very compelling about just like her presence. Because like you can see this woman really cares about what she's studying. It really means something to her. And I remember towards the end of the semester, she introduced us to the four loves. And that I actually could grasp a little bit because it's, you know, it's love. Like we, you know, we can relate in our experience. And I went on to read Mere Christianity. And I feel like that was the first work of theology somewhat philosophy that I was like, okay, I can start to get into this. 
Um, but I'm I'm wanted to ask for you, like, is there a particular professor or a person who really sparked your interest and like got you invested in philosophy? Yeah, I mean, he's a friend of mine now. His name is Brian Mullins. He still teaches uh, in the area, same area that I, I teach in. And he's the one I I took my first philosophy classes in, and it was my freshman year uh, of college. And um, it, I didn't get, I, I mean, in, in history class, sometimes they maybe mention John Locke or something like that, uh, but never had the opportunity to take an actual philosophy course until then. And he's kind of a, a classic cynic uh, and very uh, uh, can be very straightforward about his views and uncompromising about them, but really challenging in terms of of uh, uh, of his beliefs on to the students. He, like his very uh, his teaching style is he's going to challenge what your beliefs are. And for some of my my uh, peers at the time, they that rubbed them the wrong way, but even though I didn't agree with him on a lot of the stuff that he was saying, I, I was just, I loved that, that type of uh, engagement in the material. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how like a person, a, a professor can really make it come alive for you, but also could kill your interest in it as well. Cause I've, I've right. professors who were like, who are just super dry and just go through, just go through the motions and like, I've seen in my own experience with teaching, like you have to find a way to, really present it as something relevant to life like really provoke them to ask questions as opposed to like okay you know aristotle said this Kant said that like nobody cares if you do it that way obviously yeah that's the challenging thing that you really have to keep in mind if you want to be a good teacher you have to think of the student perspective and that's also challenging because you have depending on your class size and i generally have like 30 to 35 students so you can't like you have to think of like a an amalgam of like what's in general my students' uh, perspective that they're coming from. Uh, but if the thing is, as professors or lecturers, uh, we get into whatever whatever material that we are into because we just are really uh, intrinsically motivated by reading and studying it. And some of my colleagues are get really frustrated why they can't understand why. Uh, their students don't have that same interest in it. And like, we should just be able to sign a reading and come and sit down and talk about it. Uh, and depending on the class, like if it's an upper level graduate course, like you should, that might be, it might be a fine class format. But if it's to a group of students that have to take the course yeah. uh, for general requirement, uh, that's not, you know, that's not going to work in terms of actually, you know, teaching the material or having good discussions on the material. And so it does take a little bit of extra work thinking of where are they coming from? How, what are the entry points that this is going to make it relevant for them and kind of spark that fire uh, that, that you, uh, we, as you know, people who study this already uh, already feel inside of us. Mm. So then what would you say, like, what have been the most effective methods or topics to really engage a broad span of your students? Yeah. Yeah. So this is when I first started teaching my introduction to philosophy class, I did it more of a, a historical survey. Like here are, here are the major figures, here are some of their key ideas and arguments. And I think that is a really valuable way of teaching it to philosophy majors, <laughs> but from uh, a, a, a just a entry point, uh, it didn't work, at least for, for my teaching style, it didn't work as well as when I switched over to more of a topic-based approach. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the ones that I 
go to as I first talk about arguments for and exist uh, against the existence of God. Most of my students are going to be coming from a uh, theist point of view, but I always have a handful of atheists and agnostics in the room as well. And it's something that I think everybody thinks about, it, whether or not you're raised religious or not. It's a, such a big part of our culture, uh, thinking about whether God exists or not and what reasons we could have for believing or not believing is a great way to get, I think, the the discussion started, uh, the philosophical uh, method started where you're considering opposing views, trying to understand it, and look for its strengths and weaknesses within them. Uh, and then also just, I try to think of questions that I thought about before I really started uh, diving deeper into philosophy. So basic things like, what, what should I think about death? Uh, what makes life meaningful? What what types of things should I, I, I seek in, in life? And then other things, I just uh, think about what are aspects that I, uh, I've come across that I just find interesting that they might also think is interesting as well. So uh, instead of just, just teaching Descartes' uh, its views on you know, his uh, meditations of, 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 on uh, certainty and whether what, what we can know for sure. I do that, but also compare, uh, put it side by side with some more contemporary arguments about whether we live in a simulation and relate it to, uh, well, at one point I could relate it to uh, the matrix. It's not as uh, common for my students to to know what that is anymore. <laughs> so finding other more more contemporary uh, uh works of fiction to relate things to. Yeah, no, but what you said about thinking about the questions that you asked that really, you know, broke your thought. Um, I like, I always try to start my classes. I'll, I, I always try to go for shock factor in the beginning because most of them are coming into this class. Like, oh, I don't have to take philosophy. I don't want to do this. So I'll just like come in and write on the board. You're all going to die. <laughs> class Excellent. doesn't matter. This isn't going to you getting a college degree won't change that. So like either you can leave or you can stay. But if you stay, like you have to give me a reason why you're staying. And then that gets the conversation going. But like I find that, you know, studying existentialists or like anyone with that, that kind of bent really catches their attention. Because if you put them in front of the fact that they're going to die, then they're kind of forced to think about, yeah, like, is there a point? So like. I don't know, from someone as far back as Augustine to someone like Camus or Nietzsche today, like those have been crowd favorites. You know, they uh, they really get them thinking. Um, but also, I don't know, I try to do a lot of pop culture, like bring in current events because, you know, it's relevant. But um, yeah, but with the, the the question of like existence of God, it's interesting seeing how a lot of them like will come in with baggage from their religious experience, whether it's good or bad. And I like I do try to make clear to them our approach to this question of philosophy class is going to be very different from theology because we're not taking it for granted that God exists. And ultimately, philosophy can't prove for sure. Like it can we can reason about the possible existence of God, but like I, I can't preach to you one answer or the other, you know. So I don't know. I mean, how do you find whether for your kids who are theists or who are atheists, like how do they grapple with the philosophical approach to God's existence as opposed to the theological one? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, if we if we linger on it for a really long time, they get bored with it. Uh, but but if you, uh, I spend you know just a couple of weeks looking at kind of some of the classic arguments, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from Aquinas and Paley, 
and then some of the arguments dealing with the problem of evil on the other side of things and treating them with well, we're going to understand these arguments then we're going to ask you know what do you think of them and look at what are some key objections that you know philosophers have raised over the years for these things and a lot of times if they the students that come in with uh, as you know maybe some theological uh, uh background and uh, and already or maybe they've never studied these arguments before but they're you know strongly uh believe in god already they think all right well yeah these these arguments prove that god exists you know done done deal and then we start exploring some of the potential weaknesses and objections and like, oh well maybe not and then uh when we get to talking about how uh, like the problem of evil and various versions of that as an argument against the existence of god it i think you can tell it's to for people that believe in god it's, it feels a little bit un unsettling at first but then we do the same process like to understand what they're saying uh but also look at what are some you know potential objections to this line of reasoning and I think they find it a very valuable experience because in everyday life, when we have discussions about whether God exists or not, it's usually not in this way. It's a very much, it can be a, a very much, a lot more, can be more passionate, but also not really trying to consider the other person's point of view and looking at uh, strengths and weaknesses of it. So then which philosophers in general do you find that they're most, your students are mo most drawn to? That's a good question. It's a uh, most drawn to, I guess if it, I generally have a pretty diverse group. Yeah. And so at the end of the semester, I'll usually ask uh, my last test, just a, a little extra credit question. Like, you know what, what part of this course has changed your mind or you thought was particularly interesting or inspirational. And it's really all over the place. Uh, so it's some things that I, and sometimes it's surprising that I think, well, that lecture didn't seem to go as well as I thought. But then some people, you know, after the fact, you know, said that really changed my mind in certain aspects. Uh, and so it, it depends on. You know, so recently, I've been teaching mostly introduction to ethics courses, mm -hmm. and some of the things that they particularly note there are just the realization that of the type of things that go on in the world. Uh, and there might be certain arguments that that they find interesting from that, but just kind of realizing the the scale of some of the well, moral issues out there, like the scale of of extreme poverty in the world, but that there's actually are some things that we can do about it too, yeah. uh, are are common things that they'll they'll write that you know change their their view or they found uh, most interesting. In terms of also another one common one, uh, just a good conversation starter. And when we talk about ethics, it's just the trolley problem. Yes. Uh, and yeah. that one, that even though we do usually do it early on in the class, we note its limitations, but it's a good, it's a really good conversation starter and really sticks with them uh, throughout the course. Yeah, and ethics, I found like what really drew, there is like, there is a group of kids in the back of my room who are just like not into it, but we really got their attention. I had them read an article about like different ethical critiques of cancel culture and that's when they're like oh wow now i see why this is relevant and i think what was most valuable to them is that they found that studying these philosophers studying you know the main ethicists it gives you the tools to think and argue more reasonably about these hot button cultural issues as opposed to just like shouting back and forth 
and even even like going back to like studying the Socratic method, studying you know the Apology, like it's it's kind of eye opening to a lot of young people to find that again, like there's a way to have reasonable civil arguments with someone who disagrees with you without shouting back and forth or without deciding you know you hate them you can't talk to them like that's really novel and i see how i don't know like this is when you understand that teaching philosophy is um no like it's not only practical but it can open doors in life to, to opportunities that we didn't know were there you know yeah for sure i think part of one of the biggest lessons that people can get from taking a philosophy class isn't one that necessarily is part of the the lecture and like in terms of the the powerpoints or, or readings or what have you but it's the process that we're going to sit and try to understand this person's point of view even if we really disagree with it uh, but nonetheless we're going to try to think it through think of you know what are what are they actually saying and what are the implications of what they're saying and and then try to really sit with it and talk about uh, the the ideas themselves. And then also uh, usually look at opposing views as well, whether or not we agree with them and try to do the same process. And I think that just being able to have discussions about people's views in that way is a valuable experience and it builds a certain skill that you might not get otherwise. Yeah, and I, I also feel like it teaches a level of humility because when again, when you're presented with someone who has a point of view that you really don't understand, it's very easy to dismiss them and say, oh, they're bad, they're evil, I can't talk to them. But when you actually study, okay, like what is the, the world you or the logic behind such a position? Like, can I at least attempt to understand it, even if I don't end up agreeing with it? It ends up humanizing the other person because you see that, okay, they took certain steps to arrive at that conclusion. And maybe there might be some things I, I find that I do agree with. Maybe there is some overlap, but but again, if we don't, I'll give young people the tools to to study that to try to make sense of that. Like again, we end in this kind of deadlock, which is you know doesn't go anywhere. Um, but that being said, I want to ask like because you focus on ethics, what it, what do you think is like the right way to approach an introductory ethics class? Like what is the best kind of curriculum that you've that you've used? Yeah, I mean, I do the classic big three. So teaching consequentialism, uh, usually through you know utilitarianism, deontology, usually through Kantianism, um, and then virtue ethics, uh, usually through Aristotle. But the way that I approach it is that like we're going to look at we're going to make sure we understand these theories, look at applications of them, and look at you know the common objections to them as well. But Rather than saying like you need to at, by the end of this course you need to figure out what theory you you are are, are aligned with and defend it, I, more, I'm more of a pluralist about this. Look at these as a different frameworks for at the very least to understand the way that people argue about right and wrong. So that like the very least what you have the ability to do is understand people's arguments about right and wrong on a deeper level. And what I tend to find is even though you might not be, people might not have been uh, trained uh, in, in philosophical ethics before. They're usually using an argument that has utilitarian or consequentialist type underpinnings or more uh, Kantian or uh, underpinnings or more focused on various character traits and virtues. And 
you're able to understand other people's points of view on a deeper level, whether or not you agree with them. Then hopefully the idea is not only to understand other people's points of view, but then you can do some self-reflection uh, and explore your your views as well. Uh, so I guess on the, the basic framework I usually take with my ethics courses is the, the, the larger structures based off of understanding these three theories, looking at applications of them and uh, potential responses to them. Uh, but the more the broader goal is is something like that. Yeah, no, I like the big question for me is how do I get them to apply these concepts to their real life experiences and and yeah, like decision making when it comes to big uh, big issues they might be facing in their lives. Um, and you know what's what's been helpful for me? Do you know Matthew Crawford who wrote um, Shop Class a Soul Craft? You heard of him? He's um no. he went to use Chicago, but he he wrote a several a several uh like really popular books that is basically attempting to apply like moral philosophy to the world of work um, and relationships, and yeah, it's like for me that's been a really helpful tool to get them thinking, really starting from again like from their concrete experiences of their work whether it's outside of school or as students their relationships with family and friends and like how do they go about discerning what is the right decision to make and like what i ended up doing for their final this last semester i had them write about a very dramatic decision that they had to make what do, what, uh, what did you end up choosing to do which philosophy do you think would best like shed light on how you made that decision which philosophy might critique what you did and I like I tried to make it clear, like I'm not telling you which framework is the best one, but I do like I hope that you start to use these tools to think more more seriously about the decisions that you make as a human being. Um, but and that's like that's the exciting thing about philosophy, because, again, like we're not here to give answers. We're here to help people to think more. Yeah, to think more deeply about how to live, what it means to be human. Um, and yeah. That, yeah, and I, I want to ask you though. So, at your university, do they is philosophy part of the core? Like, are they required to study? Yeah, we're pretty unique in this way. So, University of Dayton requires every single major undergraduate major to take an introduction introduction to philosophy class, and then one other upper level philosophy class. Okay. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So that's. So there's a given and take there. So on one side, most of my students are there because they have to be there, uh, but they're getting exposed to a topic that many of them simply would not have been exposed to otherwise. And I think it, it really is a, a strong aspect of our university that, that this is a requirement in the curriculum. They really avoided uh, and pushed back against the... Uh, pressures to say, well, only do what uh, is going to be most relevant for uh, uh, for your future job. Well, it yeah. turns out classes like philosophy are you know, really relevant. It just is in a bit more abstract way. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way that our our university has has taken uh, a more holistic approach to education. Yeah, because I'm seeing how the you know the defunding of philosophy and the humanity departments more broadly like it really is giving way to this super utilitarian 
mechanistic view of education that ends up making the students feel less than human you know like it's shouldn't be shocking that the more you take away the humanities the less human the experience of education is but i do try to emphasize that point like the fact that the university requires you to take these classes sure that may not be your major you may not use it explicitly in your job but it says something about the fact that we want you not just to be trained to make money in the future, but to be human, to know how to think about life. And then they start to see that like, it really is a gift, you know, to have that requirement. Um, and then what it's like to not have those opportunities, again, to feel like you're just a number in this machine, the system, you know? Yeah, you know, I think what another thing that classes like philosophy give us is gives us one the opportunity to explore those deep questions that matter to all humans together, you know, as uh, among your peers, but also with a, a professor, but also gives you the tools to be more comfortable to articulate these ideas and concepts with others in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, th then on a deeper level, it also gives you the, uh, the tools, the critical thinking uh, skills that you're developing there with these most difficult questions that have persisted for thousands of years, carry over to, you know, the more mundane problems that we have to deal with in our everyday life as well. Uh, so I think it's it's it gives us a, a a a lot of different skills that might not be you might not think of on paper, but in in reality they end up benefiting in, in a multifaceted way. Yeah, and that's a question of like what constitutes a real skill. Like, is it something that's has a measurable result that makes you more money, or is it again like I don't know because I. I try to emphasize to them that knowing how to think critically, knowing how to to seek meaning can help you to do your work in a in a better way, you know, even if again, like there's not a measurable result per se. You know. Yeah, interestingly, I so I've seen studies on some people trying to measure this. Uh somehow. In the sense uh so the, the two ways that I've seen is looking at philosophy majors in particular and their performance on standardized testing. And from what I've seen, I don't know how, uh, if this has been replicated and, and, and so on, but from what I've seen is that philosophy majors tend to do better on just about any uh, graduate test uh, examinations, whether it's a GRE or MCAT or, or especially the LSAT, uh, than compared to other, okay. other majors. But also, uh, philosophy majors tend to uh, have higher mid-career salaries compared to uh, yeah. many other majors. And once again, I I don't know that the level of you know I, I'm obviously going to be exposed to these type of studies being a philosopher and haven't really uh, delved into the meta works of how they did the studies and how reliable they are. But it seems to make sense for me because the types of skills that you're developing in these class are more general skills that you should be able to, that the ability to think critically and understand other ideas and think about the pros and cons of those ideas and the relationships of those ideas to other ideas should be a, a skill that could follow through to many other areas of your life. Yeah, and I would also say it has something to do with, um, like if we look at burnout rates, you know, I think people who study philosophy are more likely because you're you're trained to ask these questions about meaning about purpose like it can give you that the passion the drive to keep pursuing you know whatever your goals are whereas you know someone who may not 
think about life that deeply can easily lose that sense of meaning, even if they're a very hardworking, you know, driven person. Um, but I, I did want to ask you though, so like something that I've observed in terms of like the critical thinking and asking these deep questions, I'm finding that first, like the, the experience of like virtual school with quarantine, but also just the pervasiveness of social media, of, of TikTok and reels, like I do see how it has hampered a lot of my students' capacity to like to think logically, but also like there is this this group thing, this fear of saying the wrong thing. So they end up just regurgitating a very simplistic response that maybe they heard on TikTok, maybe they heard someone else saying. And I've like I've been very direct with confronting this, saying, like, hey, like, is this really what you think? what steps did you take to arrive to this conclusion? Are you just saying what you heard someone else say? So I don't know, I'm curious for you, like, have you observed any changes, whether due to, again, like the virtual school to social media technology in the way that young people are thinking through things? Yeah, I mean, I think I've experienced some of that as well. And usually my approach is if trying to re-articulate their idea back to them and then asking if that's clear, then asking additional questions like, all right, you know, if this is true, you know, what, uh, either talking about implications of that or why, why do you think this is true? Right. You know, what are the, the underpinnings to that? Another aspect that I, I've, well, I guess in terms of what's been helpful on that Avenue, this helpful for another uh, issue that I'll bring up here in a moment is, uh, having lots of small group discussions yeah. among their peers, mm -hmm. because that's when they start to realize that, when they talk about their views on one um, aspect or another, we're all in our individual social media bubbles. And when they have an opportunity to talk uh, to their peers about their ideas, that starts to, I think, peel back that onion and make that re realization like, oh, you know, uh, not everybody believes the way that I do. And so uh, it's, a, I think, a good realization, but also good at practicing skills of, well, just talking about these things. Uh, with other people that aren't in our social media bubble. Another thing I've noticed, and, and this is another thing that the group discussions, I think, help with, is a, a shrinking of attention span. Yeah. I don't think it's just among uh, you know younger generations. I think it's everybody. That's kind of a byproduct of, of the technology that we have, for, for better or worse. And so I've, I've had to change my lectures, and I, I'm continually trying to change my lectures to have uh, breaks where we either have a uh, smaller group discussion time or uh, throw in a video uh, and have it kind of as segmented it's rather than a traditional, all right, we have 50 minutes, you know, 45 minutes of that or, 50, or 40 minutes of that is going to be a lecture and then discussion, trying to segment to, to keep that attention span uh, uh, and teach that, keep that attention, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, I don't know, I do try to make it a point to say that like you should aspire to have original thoughts. Like even if your thoughts may be not, maybe faulty in some way, like maybe there are errors in it, but like there's something valuable in being able to come up with your own ideas to think for yourself. Um, and, and yeah, and again, to be corrected when when you, you make a mistake, but I don't know, like the group think, it does scare me though, because it's like, when I, I think about, you know, like these kids are going to be going into whatever job field in the future and there's going to be a lack of creativity if everyone's just like trying to follow this kind of uh, this mold or this this script. 
you know, like, cause it's, it's the creativity. It's the, the original thinking that really leads to innovation to, you know, to like real contributions to, to society. Yeah. I think once again, another, I keep going back to this point, but that the be ability to actually just understand opposing points of views yes. and be able to articulate those views in a way that you think that is most charitable interpretation of it uh, is a key aspect that a, any most philosophy courses are going to help with. And I think it helps combat the, yeah, the social media bubble problems where we, uh, we have these really strong views uh, 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 perpetuated that are easy and sound biteable and uh, memeable <laughs> to, you know, to spread uh, uh, in easy ways. But usually those views are uh, dehumanizing or oversimplifying the opposing side. Yes. And being willing to sit down and say, well, hold on, that other person is also a human being that also has the same basic hardware that I do. And somehow they came to a view that's very different from my own. So what exactly is going on here? Like, how can I actually understand their perspective, understanding that they are also, we are, are more alike than different. And, and so somehow their brain is uh, has this uh, belief. How did they come to that? What do they actually mean by that? And so I think that that basic process that we do for these big classic issues and philosophy helps combat that a bit uh, in in terms of the type of world we currently live in. Yeah. So I, I do want to shift gears for a second. And I want to ask, did you have any exposure to philosophy in high school? I did not. Uh, besides in, in some random history or, or uh, uh, well, let's see. Yeah. In some random history classes, I think we would briefly talk about a philosopher and, and that's about it yeah yeah because in my i remember yeah my history classes you know we learned what the enlightenment was but we didn't talk about you know what are the ideas they put forward what are the implications of these ideas but and i don't know like i i always had these big questions but i never really had an outlet to explore them the only place honestly where i felt like i could was in literature classes because when you're reading fiction, you see, you know, all these, the drama of being human and it makes you ask questions. But at least, you know, I went to a public school and every time I would ask these big questions, it'd be like, you know, we can't really talk about that. We will never know the answer. We just have to live life. Um, but then, you know, when I was teaching high school, it was a religious institution. So there was a little more freedom to ask those questions. And I, you know, I taught a philosophy elective. And what was interesting is that you know, there clearly there's a lot of overlap between a religion and a philosophy class, but the kids in the philosophy class came in much more open than they were in the religion class because there's, you know, they come in with the wall because they think they're going to be preached at. But the ones who took philosophy and then went on to take a religion class, like they were much more interested because they knew, you know, we're going to ask these big questions about life. And I found that also like they would say that they found overlap with their, their literature classes, their history classes. So I don't know, like I'm I'm a big proponent of incorporating philosophy into high school curricula because it can be so beneficial to students who are at, you know, this crucial point in their lives, but also can it can broaden their experience of studying other subjects. You know, but there, I don't know, there are a few in my research, like there are a few schools that offer philosophy classes at the secondary level, you know. 
Yeah, that's my experience as well. Uh, very rarely in public schools, uh, occasionally. And I mean, you'll obviously you'll get some type of uh, theolo theology class in religious uh, private schools, but occasionally you also have uh, some philosophy there as well. And uh, I've, my wife, she also, she talked about having some exposure to kind of the classic philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and so on through a religion class mm -hmm. um, as well. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's an unfortunate, I think high school is a great time to have it, but really, I mean, there, there's opportunities to explore some questions, especially related to ethics uh, throughout, before that as well. Yeah. It's just, we have a, it's in the United States, at least there's very rigid structures for what need to be taught. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and there's very little room to, to put anything else into the curriculum. Yeah. So I don't know. I think maybe the most realistic way to start doing that is to incorporate like bits and pieces of explicit philosophical questions within, again, within a history class, within literature, even in math, you can do it yeah. in the arts and music. Like there, I think there could be small ways to put, you know, something. In yeah, there. I agree. I think the challenge is, is that for that class session, if you're going to do the philosophy part well, you might need to change formats a bit uh, where you're actually, instead of like, uh, I mean, here's your equation, give me the answer. It's all right. What do you think of this concept? You know, what is, you know, is, is math something that uh, human beings created or discovered? You know, and uh, mm -hmm. what here are some various theories about that. You know, and what do you think of it? You know, let's sit, let's sit and just talk about what are your views on this, which it might be a bit, uh, different format than you're you're used to. So, uh, yeah. but I agree. I think that's probably the, the best way, easiest way to start getting more philosophy in the classroom is is uh, incorporating into current class structures. So then, I, I want to ask you one more thing. So, which philosophers or which schools of thought would you say are are most relevant to our current moment in history? Like, who might shed the most light on what we're what we're living? right now for those who who might want to read up yeah i mean that's a good question so i've been what i've currently the past few years been reading a lot more into is uh well our philosophers related to the effective altruism movement mm. and they've spun out uh it, they really have utilitarian origins but now are much broader than that uh and the the movement is is essentially uh, started with philosophers, but now it's uh, much more interdisciplinary, uh, trying to think of what are the biggest ways that we can benefit the world uh, to make the world a better place. And so you could see how you know, utilitarian origins it could be. But now there's plenty of uh, effective altruists that are, are completely against utilitarianism, but yet find value in, in looking for ways to address big global issues. And what So these are philosophers like uh, Will McCaskill, uh, Toby Ord, uh, Nick Bostrom is kind of on, on the fringes uh, of that movement. Uh, but what's what I find interesting is that a lot of the things that they've raised and have been warning about for the uh, have they 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 were, they raised warnings about them before the rest of society kind of realized uh, the issues. And the classic example is pandemics. You know, they've uh, very early on they noted like this is. A very neglected uh, issue that if we have a pandemic, we're not prepared, and this could uh, really threaten a lot of lives, and yeah. that's you know what ended up happening. And then 
for the past, really that predates uh, the effective altruist movement, but something that the effective altruism movement has been focusing on uh, for the ever since its uh, origins is the dangers of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which in the past year or so, the society has now uh, uh, is also very concerned about. Uh, but they there was some fourth uh, thought of of this and kind of of uh, what well, they were warning about the various issues that we're now facing currently and potentially in the next few years as well, that go back 10 years ago, a lot of the writings on it seemed a bit crazy, but now it seems like, okay, well, now they're being taken a lot more seriously. Uh, so that's where, uh, I, these are a group of philosophers that are trying to address current mm -hmm. issues. And I don't agree with them all in all their aspects, but it's something that I find really interesting. And I'm actually uh, writing a book about just exploring some of the key ideas there and some of the the key issues that they're raising about the world so do you do we have a projected release date for the book yet so it hopefully next year uh, so 2024 uh and if all goes well uh in terms of writing process uh but it could be 2025 so so we'll see all right and are there before we go? Are there any other things you want to plug for listeners? Uh, well, I mean, if you can check out, I have. Uh, you mentioned my my social media pages. My my Facebook and Instagram pages are mostly just philosophy memes. Uh, but so they're very uh, good uh, ones. I, <laughs> uh, I have to admit, they're very witty. A couple laughs out of me. They're uh, so that's a, at philosopher games. And I do post occasional educational uh, topics there. My YouTube channel has the same name at Philosopher Games. You can find it there. And that's more condensed uh, philosophy topics where I give uh, a short introduction to various uh, philosophy concepts. Most of them are in ethics, but I also have some on Descartes and fallibilism and some epistemology topics as well. Awesome. Great. Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me.